If you lived your teenage years in 1994, I guarantee you'll instantly recognise the introduction to this song, and probably spent a fair few nights at the disco dancing along to it too. It is of course Saturday night which took the UK and Europe by storm and cemented its place in music history. Joining me today to talk about her life after that thing she did, please welcome Sunny Carlson, otherwise known as Wigfield. Hello, Sunny. Thank you so much for joining me today from your beautiful home in Italy. Oh, thank you for having me today. So I've seen you post on Instagram when you've done Zoom interviews during lockdown. It's been 50-50 as to whether you're wearing anything from the waist down. <laughs> so, so to kick things off with a slightly personal question, are you wearing pants today? I'm wearing shorts because it's about 35 degrees in Milan at the moment. So yeah, I am wearing clothes. <laughs> I have been known to do an interview or a chat fairly presentable from the waist up and then in my short shorts below the desk. Yeah, it's okay to be a little bit naughty, I think. And then I think during lockdown, most of us lived in our trailers or just jammies or whatever. I actually did a Sky interview in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the picture I saw on Instagram. But is do you kind of feel like at the time, like hmm, nobody knows that I'm in my underwear? Well, until I post it, <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of newsreaders that are suit and tie from the waist up, and then under the desk they're shorts and trainers. Exactly, but you know, I think it's it's fun to be a bit playful, and I'm not a person. I never take myself seriously, and you know, life is hard enough as it is. So just let's have fun. Couldn't agree more. So let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Um, let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You initially studied fashion design in Copenhagen and then went to Milan to carry on down the fashion route, but it didn't quite work out for you. No, well, I mean, because I... Um I entered this, uh, the Smirnoff Fashion Awards in Copenhagen. The prize was actually a year at a famous uh, design school in Milan with everything paid for. And I didn't win it, but my dress was posted on every single newspaper. And I thought, I just thought, well, let me just go to Italy anyway, because I felt Copenhagen was very small for, for me to actually get on with it. And I knew, I had friends in Italy. So I actually ended up in Bologna. And I went around different places to show them my, my book. And I ended up at Fendi and the lady, the lady sitting at the end of the table was looking, looking at me going like up and down. And then she said, what are your measurements? And I went, no clue. And she said, well, I think you're the right me measurements for us to do fittings with you. And well, I mean, I was 21 and my, I was basically like 90, 62, 90. So I started working in the fashion industry, doing fittings, and, and I ended up working with Laura Biagiotti, and that's how I actually ended up doing completely something completely different in the fashion wow. industry. But then, in the evening, um, I started working, doing PR for different clubs, so I had basically my 24-hour filled with 
just work, work, work. And so then it was while you were doing PR for clubs that you ended up singing for a producer, which led you into recording Saturday Night. Well, I met um, one guy called David Riva. He was DJing at one of the clubs where I was working. You know, sometimes I would do, uh, I would sing a bit in between tracks and stuff like that. He said, you know what, um, my producer is actually looking for uh, new vocals and, and, and new talent and stuff. So if you want to pass by and, and say hello. So I actually, um, a few days later, I took the train to Reggio Emilia. And uh, we just clicked straight away. Uh, that was Larry Pignagnoli, my producer. And he told me a, a little bit of, you know, the kind of music they were producing and what he'd done before and stuff like that. And they played me Saturday night and said, could you try it out for us? And I went through half, half a take. <laughs> and then he just said, stop, stop. And I went, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> and he said, do you know what? We're fine, you know. Let's just uh, let's just start working to the, together and see what what comes out. And we just started from then. That was in 1993. It's hard to believe, given how much success the song went on to have. And obviously, we're coming up on almost 30 years now since it was first released. But you had real trouble getting any record label to pick it up originally, didn't you? It was basically really impossible. I think maybe it was. It was a sound that was a bit of before its time because in those years there was a lot of Italo dance coming out with the same kind of uh, sound. So Saturday Night was very much, um, I, I used to call it bubblegum pop. It was very cheesy, uh, almost like a, a nursery rhyme. And we just couldn't really, the only one who actually picked up the song was, it was a store selling records. It was two guys. They had a small label. And they signed us. And it just, it actually became a hit after, um, it's a guy called uh, Fernandisco, a big DJ in Spain in, in the 90s. Um, he had a show every Saturday night called uh, World Dance Music. And he picked up the song, started playing it every Saturday night. And what happened was, um, the story I've heard is that an aerobic instructor did a class where he would do the Saturday night dance mm. to the song and it just spread around clubs and weddings and whatever. And it was actually the audience that made the song a hit, not a label. Well, I mean, it became like a huge hit in Spain. Also, as you said, the, it was being played every, every Saturday night. Um, and it was number one for 11 weeks there, which is amazing that's like three months yeah um and i think it was when british holiday makers visited spain and they heard it in the clubs and then demanded it when they got back home that it then took off here in the uk well i saw an interview with dr fox and he said that in 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 that period people would call in to the radio or bbc or radio one or whatever and request the song and nobody's heard about it until it, that was systematic and London Records picked it up in the UK. And I, I was on tour in Portugal. It was a Sunday and I, I get this phone call from the BBC and they say, Miss Wickfield, you're number one. <laughs> it had just gone straight into number one. And you, you're in the Guinness Book of Records for being the first female act to enter at number one with their debut single. Yeah. So what was your reaction when you found that out? Because not only are you, you know, it's great to have a number one, but now you're... 
you're in the record books as well. I was just like, I think I was, I was more proud because I made my grandmother proud. That was very important to me because she was always like, she was my rock. And I grew up in a very musical family. Like my parents were playing instruments. My, my grandfather was a violinist and he actually he built a violin for me when I was four years old. You know, I was very, very little. Mm. And I mean, the whole thing just seemed a bit, when you're so young and so much is happening so quick, it was just weird. But I had the time to prepare myself because I, you know, I've been on tour nonstop ever since it became a hit in Spain. So I kind of like, I wasn't really shy and I kind of knew how to deal with press because what I found was the press in the UK could be really rough. Mm. So, you know, I was just kind of like every weekend I was on top of the pops and I was actually asked to present it with Joe Brand. Wow. I became this, you know, I was doing all the popular stuff, you know, all the kiddie programs and stuff like that. So I really had a good time doing it. And you also famously dethroned Wet, Wet, Wet from the number one spot. <laughs> well, they said they were happy. <laughs> they were number one forever here for 15 weeks with that song from Four Winnings and a Funeral, Love is All Around. I mean, that that's an achievement in itself. <laughs> well, they have said that they were tired of it anyway. So I, I, I remember I just they asked me about it and I just said I made them dry, dry, dry. <laughs> <laughs> And you mentioned the dance routine a little bit earlier, um, the famous dance routine that everyone did to the song. And I remember doing it myself at a few school discos, but you didn't actually, obviously you said you didn't actually create it. It was an, an, an aerobics instructor that did it. And you never actually danced it yourself on stage ever. I have danced it for a photo session because they asked me, that was in Spain. I did some, you know, those very cheesy teen magazines and stuff. And they, uh, they wanted me to do the dance routine and I just, I did it even though I didn't, because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be like too foolish. You know, I wanted to be mm. taken serious as well. I didn't want to be like, um, I didn't want to be just in and out. You know, I wanted to be taken serious for what I was doing and for my work. So, but I did that photo session and I've done the routine on TikTok as well. It must be nice though, that you have a song that there's a, a routine that people do. I think I saw a video that like during lockdown, it was a way of people that like, got yeah. brought together. They were all doing the Saturday night dance in the street. Well, I ended up doing uh, an interview with Sky News because of that, because they just thought, you know, it was so hilarious. I got so many messages for it. And um, it was some lady in Ireland who sent it to me. But what happened was uh, the Macarena, they stole the dance, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar. <laughs> but what they did was they were really smart about it because they did the dance in the video. The two old blokes didn't, but the, <laughs> the girl did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the old blokes, they didn't do the dance. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about your music video for Saturday Night, which I think many people have replicated on a Saturday night, getting ready, wrapped in a towel, one on your head, putting your makeup on, singing into a hairdryer. Um, and I have to say it had a direct influence on me going through a phase of wearing my hair in multiple plaits <laughs> because of your video. Um, what are your memories of making it? Well, the plaits came out because I flew over from Milan to London and we had very little time shooting it. So the girl doing my makeup, she, she said, um, but I'm not really good at doing hair. And I just thought, oh, my God, we have no time. And because I grew up in West Africa, 
my I used to have like my hair in plaits and stuff and I, I could do my hair myself and I just thought you know what let's do something funny and I just did the full plaits because then you know we wouldn't have to redo the hair during filming and whatever so I just did those and that was it. Maybe this is like my mum in my head who always said to me don't walk around with wet hair and stuff. Like, you know, if I had yeah. a towel, wet <laughs> towel on my head, you're like, dry your hair, you're going to catch a cold. And I'm just thinking like how long video shoots normally take. And you were just like wearing a towel pretty much 75% of the video with wet hair. <laughs> that seems quite miserable. <laughs> well, when we shot with the towel and I had my hair up, it wasn't wet in that, in that okay. part. <laughs> and also in the video, I'm wearing my I'm I'm wearing my own clothes that I made myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I've sewn everything that's in the video, apart from the towel and whatnot. And I think the wet hair scene was done, you know, fairly quick. But it is basically a look inside of what most teenage girls do in the weekends. You know, that's like the whole thing about getting ready, the excitement. And in the video as well, there is a shot where I'm looking at a picture. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Of a guy. Yeah. A few guys. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a, a photograph of the producer of the video from uh, a mud party he had in Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess all catchy earworm songs can be divisive. You either love it or hate it. Yeah. Um, but you actually had like beer thrown on you at stage and were insulted a lot. How did, did you cope with that? Um, well, I remember when I was on Talk of the Pops every week, I remember one of one day one technician came over to me. He said, do you know what? I really hate your song, but I can't get it out of my ear. It was 50-50 all the way, you know. And, of course, you would have people in the crowd. I mean, I've been given the finger... Uh, especially if you do like festivals and they're like other artists among you. So mm. there will be people that really adore you and people that just can't stand your music. And that's fun. You know, I, there's stuff I don't like, you know, but the whole thing, I think it's situated uh, around the beer part was about alcohol. It was just a bunch of drunk guys. So to end up having beer thrown at my face, that's just part of the job. I mean, I, you know, I've seen other artists having like bottles of water thrown at them. So I think I've been lucky. <laughs> lucky to only have beer thrown at you. I mean, that's, that's kind of sad though. Yeah, but if you have like a bottle of lager thrown in your face. <laughs> but Better to just be the liquid. Um, I saw an interview with you a little while ago where you said because you had fame so young at 23 you quote uh, lost the plot a little bit and there was lots of partying mm -hmm. did you have any support or guidance at the time to help you or were you just so consumed with the environment that it was just hard to resist nothing that was because I was the difference between I think being in a band or being alone is that I was basically alone my travel companions would be my dancers slash backup singers and my tour manager but you know, when you travel a lot with the same people, you tend to also separate yourself. You get to the hotel and then you kind of do your own thing. And I think in, in those days when, because you had so much time on your hands, it was basically just, oh yeah, like, what are we going to do? Okay, let's drink. Mm. Or, you know, it would just be not really taking care of myself. And I would, I didn't really have the support because I was kind of like, 
um, tending to, to stick around in my own company a lot. So, I mean, towards now, which is basically my life is like, because in those days also, you would be awake like all night and not only for, for work, but then you would have to, you know, be transported to some other gig or to the airport. And it was just constantly, you know, uh, trying to fill up space. And now I go to bed at 11. I don't drink alcohol. It's just the whole thing. I live really healthy. In those days, it would just be burgers, sandwiches. But I mean, that's just how, how it went. You know, I mean, every time I was on tour and I would meet my colleagues, it was just party, you know, because you, you, you always had this idea. You didn't know how long it would last. Mm. So you kind of tended to overdo everything and just make the best out of every single moment, even though it wasn't a healthy lifestyle. What's your favorite memory from the time or, or what is your, what moment are you most proud of? There was one particular moment I remember because it was just, it was just mind blowing. I was performing at the Bollywood Awards in Mumbai and I had to do a duet with a Hindi singer. She would do her part in Hindi and I would do my part in English of Saturday night. And before going on stage, uh, a guy comes over to me and he says, you know, there's a billion people watching this. A billion. <laughs> and I was just like, oh dear Lord. I was, I just remember the emotion I had in that moment. I was just so, just the, the whole feeling of everything in those three and a half minutes is going to be so intense and you cannot do anything wrong. You just have to get it right. Everything has to be right in those three and a half minutes. And it's such a big moment in your career when you get out and, and get to reach so many people. And how did it go? I presume, I presume you didn't fall over or get anything wrong. <laughs> Something really funny. The stage was all built. It was like a wooden structure. And at the end, almost at the end of the song, I'm at the end of this uh, catwalk and it starts moving because <laughs> I had so many backup dancers and my bodyguard is standing at the end and he goes, go back. <laughs> It just went from one side to the other because of all the movement. But it was, yeah, that was like the peak of my career. I did get drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> all the emotions and whatever. It was just, yeah. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone now and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. So you had a few top 10 hits after Saturday night, but how much pressure did you feel to keep up with the level of success you had with your first song? I guess pressure from both your record label and from the press as well. Well, because I had so many independent labels around the world, I wasn't signed to a major label like that would take care of everything. Um, it was you know, different photo sessions for different covers of different albums. And it was just like, it was a bit messy. And also the urge of, you know, they were asking, this is what we want to hear. And it had to be like the same sound because of course they want to, they want to receive the same sound, the same productions, the same level of hit, if you want to call it like that. And after a song like that, 
you could not make another song like that. It, it's physically impossible. That's what I think. Mm. It's only now that I've started, um, I'm going to be doing some productions this um, autumn because I've got like four different tracks very much in that category. But in, in that moment, it's, it's impossible to do. And basically the uh, success just went down and down. But I was lucky that in, when it was going down in Europe, I would go to Australia and it was big there with different singles. Like in Australia, if, when I would perform Saturday night, they would just look at me and go, what is that? <laughs> and I would, I would play sexy eyes and go, way. And then I would go to, to Canada. It was just like, a, it never really ended mm. until it kind of slowly, slowly, slowly just went down and the gigs were less and it, it didn't really stop. It was just ending up not being, you know, you kind of not, you're not that cool person anymore. Mm. Music changes, music style changes and stuff. It does. You have new artists, fresh artists, younger artists, uh, new sounds, and you kind of just have to, or you change completely. You do something completely different, which I did later on, but you just kind of, you have to accept it. We'll talk about what you did different in a second, but did you ever feel like Saturday night was kind of like a heavy weight around your neck that prevented you from being taken seriously? I know mean, you mentioned before that, you know, you wanted to be taken seriously and not as cheesy pop because um, you were kind of seen as like a one hit mm -hmm. wonder or novelty yeah. act. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I always felt like I tried very hard to be taken serious, maybe during interviews, because my knowledge of music was not just only about Saturday night, but, you know, I knew a lot about music and it's, you can't, you can't really tell people what they should think of you. You know, it's what everybody, they make their minds up about who you are, what you are about. And when your time's up, then your time's up. You just have to accept it and get, get on with life. Mm -hmm. So you stopped touring uh, around 2001 and you spent about 10 years writing and producing and mm -hmm. worked with the likes of Benny Benassi focusing on house music, which was the different yeah. style you mentioned. Um, was that the kind of music that you'd always wanted to make, but you just couldn't under the Wigfield name? Do you know, it was the music I would listen to in my spare time if I'd do sports or whatever, or going to clubs. I love dance music, but I wanted to write more. Um, I, I was in a period where I did so many different projects. I wrote half an album in French for this uh Italian artist called Ingrid. Um, I started collaborating with DJs and I don't know, it was kind of like, because I thought my time was up as an artist, you know, it was, I felt like also maybe I was too old to be in, in dance music. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until 2012, I released some more stuff. I released an album it didn't make anything like nobody listened to it. <laughs> um, and I just thought, okay, well, let me just do something completely different. And I went into, I actually met up with an Italian producer who he's one of the founders of an Italian band called Planet Funk. Um, and we talked about, you know, they were going to London to produce their album. And I, um, I spoke to my partner and I said, I would really like to work together with these guys, you know, you know, see how it goes. 
And we ended up at studio uh, in London. And I stayed, I stayed for three years. It was so much fun writing and producing. And I found this little group of people and, and co-writing and having fun. Like, I did a song called Boys and Girls. Basically, we wrote it in a morning. You know, coming into the studio and just feeling, oh, I've got so much in my head. I just want to get it out. And just started, you know, going around to different labels. The problem was um, uh, we would hear feedbacks like, oh, Whitfield, how old is she? Mm. And that's the problem in the business when, you know, ageism, you know, you're not, you just go and hide underneath the couch or something because that that song is a really good song well the thing was we ended up being signed with armada music which you know it's a big dutch label for big you know djs and stuff and i had with my house project i got a lot of airplay a lot of big djs playing but i didn't get any gigs until last year when i released my latest single sugar but what we did was we thought, we're not going to say who it is. So we released it on a white label and the song went number one in the UK twice. First time under white label and the second time with the name Whitfield and then the third time it went number two, all within five months. Which is amazing because the club clubs weren't even open to play it. Yeah. So do you think if you had released it as Whitfield and not anonymously, it would have had the same reception? I was afraid to do so. I, I really thought it was a good track and I thought I don't want to be, it was a bit like Saturday night with the dance, like I didn't do the dance. I wanted people to listen to the song and then judge, you know, after they said they liked it, and then come out and say, Goo-goo, it's me. So it was it was a move that I just wanted to be sure to be heard and have the radios play it. Yeah. You started releasing more house music under your under your real name, Sani, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of liberating for you to do, to do it just under your name and not Wickfield? Well, it was it was a bit like a project that I you know, it was like I wanted to do something that I really, really enjoyed. I really enjoy writing pop music as well, but I just I had so many, so many ideas within house music and I used to listen to house music in the, in the early nineties. So I just, you know, all the ideas I had, they were not, um, I wouldn't be able to put it in dance tracks. It had to be more housey and it was a bit, you know, the vibe was different. And my producer said, look, if you're going to release this as Wakefield, people are not going to buy it. They're going to go, no, no. <laughs> No, this is not, you know, because you are this cheesy, whatever, um, happy, whatever, and house music is not going to be played by the cool DJs. So this is what we did. So let's listen to a little bit of Sugar, because it is a bit of a banger, as we would say. Thank you so much. As I said, that is a banger. I was surprised when 
I heard it was you as well. Although now that I know it's you, mm-hmm. I kind of think, of course it's you because I can hear your voice when you sing it. But I, but I didn't at the time. I just mm-hmm. didn't put two and two together. A bit like The Masked Singer when you watch it. Sounds familiar, but I can't mm-hmm. quite tell who mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. But you know what? It's, I, I, it's nice to surprise people. You know, it's uh, after 30 years and still do this and still get to um, have the honour of being listened to. It's amazing. Mm. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the music scene has obviously changed a lot since your first single, especially for artists and how they earn their money now. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say that you don't think your current music has an album market. So you're most likely to release singles and maybe an EP down the line. That's very pragmatic of you. Well, my next project is going to be, because I've got four or five tracks up my sleeve, which is very cheesy music and I would like to concentrate on that because I think it's going to be a fun project and I might release it as an EP but I'll I'll just have to wait and see because there's not really a market for albums for me anymore I don't think so but it's very realistic and present of you to to recognize that because I know you know there are a lot of artists who are kind of from the same era or around the same age as you now who will keep releasing albums still and then they get a hammering in the press because their album hasn't done very well so for you to recognize that now well I'm the way I'm living my life now I'm very I live very mindful and I'm very aware of the reality of life and I'm being fulfilled with because I'm, I'm touring still around the world and I have a great musical life still because I get to do what I love most, which is see the audience. And with the money I make, I basically produce stuff that makes me happy and that I enjoy making. It's not like I don't, I don't have a, a label. I have my own label. I don't have to put pressure on myself to have a release date or whatever. Whatever I do, it's up to me. Mm. Um, speaking a little bit about life, um, you haven't really spoken much about it before, but you were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014 and had surgery and radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. I had a breast cancer scare myself a couple of years ago. Um, and in the two weeks between first seeing my doctor and then going to the hospital and seeing the specialist, I made a lot of life decisions and changes. Um, and thankfully, I'm fine now, but it must have been a very difficult time for you how did you cope and get through it well before I was diagnosed I went to have uh I don't know what you call it where they put a needle in and to suck out like a biopsy yeah a biopsy and I was staying in London at that time so I flew back to London and I was supposed to get an email but I didn't get an email so I thought everything's over I don't know what I thought so the doctor had actually written me an email. It, it, it went into spam. Oh. <laughs> so I called up the doctor and, and he said, do you mind coming in? And I was like, oh, dear, oh, dear. And um, he said, look, we have to operate straight away. So, you know, this is the time schedule for you for the next few months. And after that, we are going to do... Um, we're going to uh, give you radiation for six weeks, which left me completely without any skin on my right breast. It was horrible. And it was kind of a lonely time in my life. And you're right. You kind of 
start making certain decisions where you are kind of, I think when you're confronted with, I wouldn't say possibility of death because I found it very early, early stages of breast cancer, but you kind of go, well, is this because of the way I've lived? You kind of, I just started thinking about all the possibilities and what I had to change or is milk bad for you because milk is bad for women for breast cancer. You know, I started making all these things, but I just came out of it on the other side. And I think a little, a little bit humans tend to forget that we're ill <laughs> very quickly. Like when you have a flu and you kind of go, Oh my God, I'm going to enjoy life so much because having the flu is just the worst. The same thing happened to me with breast cancer. I kind of went, I kind of just went on with my life straight after. Did you have a, a good support network at the time? Well, to help you through what your treatment? I was kind of, because I, I love my own company in a certain way. I would wake up five in the morning and go by car. It took about 40 minutes because I, I was treated in Milan. And I would sit there in the room with other women. And I don't know, it was a very um, silent time in my life. I, I would spend a lot of time thinking um what I would do also would I went on my social media I want you know I wanted to tell the world not that I had been sick but please go and get tested please tell a friend to get tested because if you get checked up once in a while you can actually really beat this easily so I wanted to to use my voice for that you know it and that helps me a lot you know when when you can do something for someone else even if it's just telling them, look, this happened to me. It's okay, you know? Well, very happy that you are well and healthy now. I'm very happy you're well and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, on to something a bit more, a bit more happier. Um, the popularity of tours featuring 90s acts has, has really soared in recent years. And now that restrictions are easing, you've started to go back on the road again. And you're going to be over here in England on 4th of September at Mighty Hoopla, where Cheryl is headlining and En Vogue, Gabrielle, Atomic Kitten, they're all on the lineup. So after 18 months of not being able to perform on stage, it must be great to get going again. Do you know what? <laughs> I did a few gigs last week. And the last gig I did was in Spain and it was so difficult for them to get me off stage. <laughs> <laughs> I just went out and I went just, where the hell have you been? <laughs> I enjoyed every single minute of every song and I was so happy because they asked me to come back on stage and I went back on stage and I, and I saw some of my colleagues and just being on the road Sitting in airports was, you know, sometimes can be so boring. And I just sat down and looked at people. I, every, I, I just, every single, you know, every minute was amazing. And unfortunately, this week, you know, um, I was supposed to be in the UK for a festival. That had been cancelled. So I hope Mighty Hoopla, they will still let us fly over from Italy. So I'm crossing fingers. And toes. <laughs> everything else <laughs> unless Boris changes his mind and <laughs> um, you have a fabulous collection of cat suits that you wear on stage as well which you look amazing in by the way um thank you do you design them yourself um I have a company that make them for me but I do put the color scheme together like I the suits are made in, in a way that every single little piece 
because it's fitted, it's made exactly to my measurements because it's latex and you can't really go wrong. You have to make it like perfect, like a, a second skin. So I have them, the color scheme that I want. And uh, yeah, it is hard to get in because it's a lot of talcum powder. <laughs> is it like the episode of Friends where Ross gets a pair of leather PVC trousers <laughs> yeah. and he's trying to pull them on? <laughs> talcum powder. Exactly, exactly. And it's not easy to get off. Uh, it's great for cellulite, <laughs> but in the summer period, normally I have like uh, just like a, a light material that I use. How many do you have? Oh. Hundreds, I'm guessing. <laughs> I don't have hundreds because I try not to use the same, but sometimes like if I'm in a different country, if it's a different kind of venue, sometimes I will reuse them. And then I have like, I have a full wardrobe with 90s clothes. And also because now there's so many 90s gigs going on, I love to dress up very colorful or silly or whatever. You know, I really, you know, I have to say this. I really don't take myself serious. Just before we finish, we have to talk about all the food porn that you post on your Instagram. Mm. Um, I'm the sort of person where all the pictures on my phone are either of my cats or food. Mm -hmm. So um, I love looking at food porn. But um, I guess if you live in Italy, you can't help but enjoy food, right? Do you know what? When I first moved to Italy, I gained 10 kilos in six months. I have learned, well, also because I've, I've changed my way of living. So I eat very healthy now. I started training for half a marathon. Also because I am 51 and I am in menopause, my body's changed a lot. So I really have to take, be careful of what I eat. Uh, of course, if I go out with friends, I'm going to have a pizza. I'm going to have a cake, but I'm just really uh, careful of what I put in my body now. So where does your love of cooking come from and what's for dinner tonight? My grandmother taught me how to cook. I just had this fascination about even just beating eggs or whenever there was flour involved. I just thought it was it was very funny to, to cook. I didn't see it as to prepare something that you eat. It was more a game to me. And then just growing up, it just passed on. My mother helped me cooking. I, I loved cooking for my family. My dad loved my cooking. And just that whole people loving your cooking, you kind of like go, oh, well, well, I can do this and I can make Thai food and I can make this and let's have Chinese. <laughs> well, tonight I'm going to be honest with you because it's 35 degrees in Italy and all my windows are open. I'm just going to have salad tonight because it's so warm. <laughs> and uh, water, it's salad, watermelon. I just try and eat healthy salads with olive oil and just get lots of nutrients in. It sounds tasty, even though you're going to have salad, because I've seen the pictures on Instagram and your salads aren't just like my salads, which is like a bit of lettuce, cucumber and tomato. You're, you end up having like caprese salads and you've got steak in your salads and they're, they're a lot more. Well, they're not just a you, salad. You, you gotta like, you gotta live a little, but you gotta like fool your eyes a little bit. You know, it has to be like eye candy. A salad needs to be delicious. <laughs> Sunny, it's been lovely talking with you today and I look forward to seeing you on the road soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ma, 
massive thanks again to Sani for kicking off season three with me. As we mentioned, she's going to be performing at Mighty Hoopla in London on the 4th of September. And if all goes to plan, restrictions wise, she'll also be in Canada later in the month as part of the 90s Nostalgia Tour and at the biggest 90s disco in Dublin in October. You can also follow Sani on Instagram at Wigfield or on Twitter and Facebook at Real Wigfield. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit celebritycatchup.com support where you can donate the cost of coffee or whatever you'd like, which will help pay the running costs and keep the lights on. If you can't afford to donate, I know times are tough, please don't keep the podcast yourself. It would really help me out if you could share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review, all that stuff massively helps too. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listening.